All right, Hosea. Let's talk about the historical situation for a minute because things are about to become very unstable. In fact, you probably want to go ahead and turn to Hosea because I'm going to start shouting out chapters and verses at some. Karen's already there. She fell for this a couple weeks ago when I look at people blindly and say, Read! <laughs> the, the situation is about to become very unstable. And you can tell by the type of prophecy that Hosea warns us he's going to deliver. Justin, would you read verse 4? And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So we get right off the bat the awareness that this is going to be a pretty intense prophecy against the house of Jehu, against the northern kingdom. And the king at the time is Jeroboam II. It says he was the king in Israel when the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And Jeroboam II's reign is quickly followed by a period of political anarchy. After Jeroboam, you have six kings in the next 30 years. Three of those kings rule for two years or less. Four of those six kings are assassinated. This is not a peaceful time in the kingdom. And this is what uh, Hosea is called to speak into. Hosea is a two-part lesson for us as the reader. Part one is the story of Hosea, where God, somewhat like Jonah, uses the experience of the prophet to make theological points for his people. But unlike Jonah, you have this part two, which is the teaching of Hosea. And the story of Hosea is pretty much all about Hosea's marriage. The question you've got to answer to understand the book of Hosea is what does verse two mean? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits a great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This one's always fun to read in family worship as your kids look at you and say, are you allowed to say that word? And you say, yes, it's in the Bible. Look, three times in one verse. What does Hosea 1-2 mean? The underlying question is the moral problem. Can God command someone to marry a sinner? Can God command someone to... Can can this be what it appears to be on the surface? And people try to find ways to work around this problem. The first way people always try to get around difficulties in the Old Testament is to what? Spiritualize them. Yep. This isn't physical whoredom. This is spiritual whoredom. So Gomer is not uh, somebody who practices sexual promiscuity. Gomer is somebody who practices idolatry. And harlotry is just a, a figure for physical adultery and sexual immorality. And that totally solves the problem, right? 
How does that solve the problem at all? And there's a great point of application for us because our brains do tend to think that way. Our brains do tend to think that idolatry, because it's just in your head and doesn't have external manifestations, is not as bad as sleeping around. It's just as bad. (laughs) You actually do one because of the other. (laughs) It starts with idolatry. And you see this um, where uh, there's lots of books and articles and things about this, but you've all heard the topic of respectable sins. And basically what respectable sins are are the ones that don't embarrass you in front of other people. So it's okay if your son is having sex in high school because, I mean, it's not okay. You wish he wasn't, but it's not as bad as your daughter because at least your son won't get pregnant. And that's why all of our daughters have to be on birth control. All of them, from like the age of 12. Because the worst thing that could happen in the whole world is one of them actually get pregnant. No, that's actually not the worst thing that could happen. But that's what our brains say, is that type of thing is way worse. So the way people try to solve this problem is by saying, well, it's not physical whoredom, because that would be really bad, and God wouldn't tell somebody to marry a whore, but he would tell them to marry an idolatrous infidel. No problem. Doesn't solve the problem. And by the way, as I mentioned in passing a second ago, It's not an either-or problem. One causes the other. If there's physical sexual immorality, it's because idolatry is taking place in the human brain. It's because we're not satisfied with God and we don't think his definition of good is good, and so we go create our own. That's what idolatry is. So it's not an either-or situation. So then, what's the next way in the Old Testament you try to solve this problem? You allegorize it. Then you just take the whole thing and say, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. That would be a problem, too. So the whole story never really took place. The whole marriage is an allegory that, that God revealed this message to Hosea like a vision. And Hosea revealed the message to his people like he's telling them a parable. And there's the, the way you can be certain about this is the names of the children that will come later. They're all symbolic names. So that means it's allegory because God never gives real people names that have meaningful symbolism, right? Okay, so this doesn't solve anything either. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be an allegory just because we don't want it to be, but it does mean the same way we said in Jonah, the same way we say in other, you have to look at the text and the text will tell you what it is. And does the text of Hosea begin with something like, then the Lord showed me, or then I saw, I saw is very often uh, non-literal language. Go to Revelation or go to Zech- uh, uh, Zephaniah place. Like there's, there is such thing in the Bible as a vision that is a non-literal vision that reveals God's real word to his people. But it doesn't start with the word of the Lord came to such and such. The same way with Jonah, the same way here. So the other thing is when you read this there's nothing else fantastical about it. It reads like a straightforward historical account. It doesn't read like an allegory. Uh, and then the other big problem for the people that really put their weight in the symbolism of the children's names, the children are secondary characters in this story. The primary character, Gomer, has a name with no meaningful significance whatsoever. And that would be very bizarre. Uh, if this whole thing were an allegory. So we don't uh, accept that either. It's not what the text leads us to understand. What the text leads us to understand is that this is a historical 
marriage. Karen, will you read verse 1? Do you hear how much work that verse does setting this event in a specific historical time and place? I I mean, we're not hanging our hat here on some flimsy thing. That verse does a lot of work establishing the historicity of what is going to take place, the time and place setting of these events. And when we read something like that, we take it as historical in the Bible because that's what the text is telling us to do. And then as we rolled our eyes at when I said it before, somebody flipped to Isaiah, uh, Andrew flipped to Isaiah 7 for a minute. It's not uncommon in the Bible to come across names that have symbolism, where the name has some sort of meaning, where both things are true. The parents named a child what they desired in their heart to name the child, and God had significance and purpose in that name. Both things are true, that God uses symbolic names in non-allegorical situations is totally common. Does the name Jesus mean anything? Yeshua, Joshua, Yahweh saves, right? That's a pretty meaningful name. So we're going to take this as a historical marriage. So then we need to talk about the character of Gomer. We need to understand what we're dealing with with Gomer. There is a technical term in Hebrew. Oh boy. I think it's Hadek. It's not a word I use a lot. For cult prostitute. So that idea of cult prostitute, there is a word for that. That is not the word that's used for Gomer. The word used for Gomer is, our English equivalent would be something like paramour, uh, an, an, an added on love, an added on lover is the root of that word, an illicit lover. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, or in in the ancient Near East as well, this word is used to describe somebody who is using sexual favors to pay off a debt or a vow that they can't otherwise pay. So it's a kind of indentured servitude where sex is the labor you provide rather than farm work. And the Proverbs 7 talks about this. Deuteronomy 23 talks about this. That's the word that is used for Gomer. And the reason that that's significant is, is this. Uh, cult prostitutes are making an active choice to engage in this particular religious prostitution activity. What a paramour, what, what Gomer is involved in is all about provision. It's, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to excuse her or to make it sound like it's any better. It's no better. But I want you to understand the, the need or the desire behind it because that's going to be critical for the book of Hosea. She's doing this because she believes this is what she needs in order to be provided for. This is the only thing. She has very little confidence or security in the provision for her life. Material provision. Food, shelter, clothes, security, safety. She is insecure with regards to all of those things. 
And so she takes these vows to men who are not her husband, or she goes into debt to men who are not her husband in order to get stuff and security and provision because of her insecurity for those things. And so she wants to be provided for. That is the longing of her heart, is to be provided for. She's very insecure in that provision, and so she resorts to the free, totally free choice. I'm not excusing her of anything, but she resorts to this uh, in order to be provided for. This language will come up both spiritually and physically. Jake, will you read two, five through eight? For their mother has played the whore. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who have given me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall, she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And read verse 12 as well. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. So God is talking to his people here using physical adultery kind of language to talk about their spiritual adultery with Baal, which is that God's people take for granted that God is the one who supplies all their needs and provides for them. They don't think it's enough or they don't trust him to provide or they feel insecure in that uh, provision. And so they chase after Baal. They chase after foreign gods. And then what ends up happening is, Stephen, will you read three verse one? The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Stop there. What did Gomer do? Even after she marries Hosea and she is provided for by a husband and she should live within the security, within the provision of that marriage, what did Gomer do? She went to be loved by another man. That's why the why Gomer does this stuff, why she is what she is, is so important. Is that the, the, the parallel there is someone who should be secure in their provision, who yet anyway chases after more security, more provision. More, that's what she's using sex for. This is not a book uh, uh, about primarily the dangers of sexual immorality or something like that. The point that Hosea is a, is a, a woman of whoredom is, is not about the, the cult prostitution, don't go be a whore kind of lesson. It's the why is she doing that? What is she seeking? She's not seeking sexual satisfaction. She's seeking security and provision. And she's trading the thing that she's got to trade for it because she is not, she's not secure in the relationship that she already has. So Gomer is a woman who is involved in a variety of relationships with men who will provide her with stuff in return for sexual favors. And just the way this worked in the ancient world, she might take up residence with some of these men for a time. And when Hosea marries Gomer, 
his expectation is that because that's the reason she did these things, insecurity, in provision, and now she has a husband who is providing, that she would stop doing these things. I have provided, therefore, you should be secure in that provision. And that's just kind of the straightforward, that's not the way it works with sin, is it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like looking at an anxious person and saying, stop. That's so many people's solution to anxiety is stop. Why don't you just stop worrying? Oh, I didn't think about that. Wow, so glad we had this talk. Uh, we should stop worrying, but saying stop worrying is not, uh, not certified counseling. How about that? And so even after the marriage, she ends up going back to her old ways. She's not secure in even what God has provided her through Hosea. And so she ends up living with another man, which leads to the situation in chapter 3. Because, again, it's not about the sex. It's she entered into a bargain for more security. And the thing that she gives in return for this uh, security is sex. All right, so the purpose of the marriage is to make that connection between Hosea and Gomer's marriage and Gomer's way of thinking and God's people, particularly Israel, whom this is a judgment against. So Israel is an adulterous wife who's been unfaithful to the Lord. What is the single most important comparative item between the covenant with Yahweh and marriage? One sacrifice. (laughs) Exclusivity. Exclusivity. That's it. That's exactly it. They are supposed to be exclusive. What's the first commandment? (laughs) No other gods. No other gods. That's the first commandment. (laughs) The vow of marriage is a vow of exclusivity. And that's why when Jesus talks about Adultery, he makes such a big point that the adultery that we do with our bodies, we're willing to take seriously. But the adultery we do with our minds, we don't think is such a big deal. And God says, it's the same thing. It violates the exclusivity. It, it, do you think that in order to break the first commandment, you actually have to go worship at a mosque? No. You have to let your heart, the idol factory, create some idols. And so, too, with the Sixth Commandment. Um, So Israel has broken the covenant, violated the first... It's the first one! Somebody says that? It's the first one. Oh, it's the Seinfeld delivering the mail thing. Neither rain nor the mail. (laughs) Newman didn't work because it was raining, and he said, it's the first one! (laughs) That's Israel. It's the first commandment. And they've broken that commandment. So then there's a warning that's given through the names of the children. Go take for yourself this wife. Uh, God perceives, sees the unfaithfulness that will take place. And the names of the children reflect the judgment that is coming. So you have three names of children here. Megan, will you read 1, 4, and 5? And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Just as Jezreel was a massacre and a slaughter at the end of the dynasty of Jehu, 
uh, that's what's going to happen here. Nick, read verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So the second child, Hosea and Gomer, are to name Lo Ruhama. And Lo Ru- I know these names well because I yell them at my children at times. Uh, <laughs> this is some of the Hebrew I've kept up with over the years. <laughs> Lo Ruhama is no mercy because God will have no more mercy. No longer will God have mercy on Israel's covenant breaking and continued unfaithfulness. Uh, and Crystal, will you read verse 9? Can you imagine what should be the terror of hearing God say that? If you just, if I am not your God. I mean, that gives me chills. So their third child's to be named Loami, not my people. Remember that the way that language is used in the covenant, I took a people who were not a people and I made them a people, my people. And now God is saying, not my people. Oh, that is, uh, yeah, so at the end of chapter 2, Gomer's unfaithful as a reflection of Israel's unfaithfulness. And how that unfaithfulness manifested is the same. They abandoned the other party in the covenant. Israel abandons God, turns to Baal, idol worship, false worship, and Gomer abandons Hosea. And goes after other men, and that's why at the beginning of chapter 3, the verse we read is that she's back in the house of another man. We abandon God himself when we abandon the covenant. I don't think it's a stretch to apply this in a careful way to modern attitudes against the church. That I just need me and Jesus in a relationship, and I don't need the church. I don't think you can have God apart from his covenant. (laughs) That's the way he engages with his people. And so I I think you are, at the very least, paying a high price in terms of what you're missing out on. And I think you are likely offending God when you say, I love you, but not your church. Being part, the land, being part of the people of God. This is not an individual indictment. This is an indictment against an unfaithful people. Uh, I think there's things to think about there. We want to be careful in the way we apply that, but I think it's worth considering and thinking about. I mean, any time that we come to him on our terms, isn't that based? Like, he's laid out the terms that you're talking to him, and you're saying, "Yeah, my terms are my better." Terms are better. Or, or you're saying, my terms may not be better, but they're the only terms I'm willing to live under. And so, God, you need to adapt to my terms. And that sounds like a risky thing to say. I feel like Nadab and Abihu might have said that right before they got burnt up. Even for good ends. Who was it? Jake and I, talk, somebody and I were talking recently about, it might have been Justin. We were talking about the, yeah, the guy who reached to save the Ark of the Covenant from falling on the ground. Oh, yeah. He had the best of intentions. Yeah, and? Instantly dead. Just... Yeah, but oh, God's so mean. He had the best of it. God said, here are the terms. 
What about Moses? Doesn't anybody feel bad for Moses? Didn't even get to inherit the promised land. Did all that good stuff for God and didn't even get to inherit. God is so arbitrary. No, actually, he's the opposite of arbitrary. He told you what to do and what not to do. And you said, God, I will do 97.4% of things the way you want them. But this 2.3%, you really got to trust me, God. I got this. And then that's when you get burnt up. <laughs> it's not, not a good way to approach God. All right, next part of the story is the trial. So chapter 2, we have a trial for adultery. It's verses 2 through 17. And I want to point out, I think this was part of your homework for Hosea, was to try to look through this chapter and see if you could identify some of the specific sections of the trial here. So first, you have the accusation at the beginning of verse 2. This is the aggrieved husband and father. And then you have the admonition at the end of that verse, which is the need to change. You have to do this differently. Then there's the threat. This is out of order, but I'm I'm putting it here for like the order of a trial. So verses 8 and 13. Somebody can flip over. Daphne, can you flip to Exodus 21.10? So the threat is the the removal of the very things, and God's speaking in physical terms here, of food, clothing, and shelter. The removal of the very things that Gomer is so obsessed with and is so insecure about. And isn't that, I mean, if you just take a second, not totally allegorize it, but apply it on a spiritual level for a minute, isn't that how you always find it works? When you... When you think you need God plus something. I trust God, but I will trust God more when I have God plus this. You will find that the plus whatever takes away from you the very thing you were looking for. And it and it's you you become convinced. Some people become convinced that God can't provide. I don't think that's what happens to people like us. I don't think anybody in this room thinks God can't provide. I think you think that God won't provide it to you. I think it becomes a, he won't give me this. He won't. He could. He's powerful. He's got all, but he won't. And our battle is with the goodness of God. I think that's where we end up. The more you study the Bible, it becomes very, very difficult to deny the omnipotence of God, his ability to provide things, his absolute sovereignty. You pretty much just got to chuck your Bible if you want to get into the category of God couldn't do this. So for people who study their Bibles a lot like y'all do, what ends up happening is not can God, it's will God. And that doesn't mean God always should. That doesn't mean God is not good when he refuses to provide you with some of that stuff. I'm just saying the part we're struggling with is not is God able. It's will God. Is God Does God want to? Is this what is best? And the very things we turn to 
to make sure that we get whatever it is we doubt God will provide. God uses it to take away from us. To take our security away from us. Now the worst thing that could ever happen is that God allows you to be secure in that extra thing. That's a bad sign. That's Pharaoh. God allowed Pharaoh to be completely secure in what Pharaoh had and his capabilities just before the waves came crashing down. Uh, That's not what you want. But God will use the plus that we add to take away from us. These other things can't help you. Uh, Who's still in? Megan, are you in chapter 2? Could you read 8 and 13? And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. 13. Mm-hmm. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with the ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Who was providing God. the gold and the silver and the things that they thought Baal was providing? What is Baal able to provide? Nothing. Nothing. So when we say, I need God plus this other thing in order to be secure, and the other thing gets us some amount of what we were looking for, oh, I don't have to be anxious because, or oh, I don't have to be, I don't have to be in control because, or I don't have... Who's actually providing? God. And the moment God decides, no more. Baal can't help you. Your 401k can't help you. (laughs) None of this other stuff that you think you can add to God can actually help you because it's all from God. It's all from God. Baal is sterile. He has no ability to provide, to produce, to do anything. So then we also get the sentences, and these are very specific. Verse 6 You'll not be satisfied. This goes to what we said before. You can get every single thing that you think your heart wants apart from God, and it will not satisfy you. God will make it so. You will not be satisfied. It's back to the language we've used in other prophets of that, the cup, and you drink the cup, and you think the cup is, it tastes good, and it's ultimately going to satisfy you. But the more and more you drink, you can't stop drinking. The more bitter it becomes until finally you're drinking the dregs of death. That's what happens when you look for satisfaction outside of God. Verse 9, you'll be stripped of everything. You will end up worse than you were before. If your insecurity that you don't trust God for is physical provision like Gomer's was, you'll end up naked in the street. (laughs) You will have less when you seek these things outside of God. But then the third part of this sentence is an absolute surprise. Andrew, will you read verse 14? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God promises three things as a result of Israel's sin. That they will never be satisfied outside of him. That he will take away everything from them. And, drumroll, he will allure her back. He will draw her back to himself. Un. Believable that this would be a part of the sentence that God pronounces on his people. And so that leads us to the promise restoration. 
Actually, at the end of verse 2, ignore that thing for a minute. At the end of verse 2, verses 14 through 23, is this promise restoration. And look at how the terminology changes. If you just scan through those verses, 14, chapter 2, 14 to 23. If your eye scans through those verses, look at the change of language. Yahweh is called my husband. My master is no longer used. The names of the children, 2.23, are reversed. Jezreel was to remind them of the massacre at Jezreel. And that's the way that that name was used earlier in the chapter. But the meaning of the word Jezreel is invoked at the end of the chapter because Jezreel means God sows, God plants. What will happen to no mercy? What will happen to not my people? They'll be called my people. A reversal of the names of the children. A reversal, a change in positioning with respect to God. Not because they do anything different, but because God shows mercy. So what happens in chapter 3? We have this promise that God is going to allure her back. And so he tells Hosea to do what? Go get her back. Go get her back. Now, just as a side thing on the text for a minute, he doesn't use the name Gomer here in chapter 3. So it's worth asking the question, who is this woman? Is this woman Gomer or is this a different woman that he's supposed to go? I've already tipped my hand. But... The translation in our English Bibles matters a lot here. And it's pretty rare that what English translation you have matters a whole lot. All of the English translations, not paraphrases, but all of the English translations are by and large really, really good. But every now and then you find a verse where it matters which one you're using. So the NIV helps you out here. It says, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another. So the NIV Um, That's not what it says in Hebrew. The NIV is more than translating. It's explaining. And that's okay. That explanation is pretty solid. Go back and show love to her again, though she is loved by another. The New King James, being more literal, is less helpful here on what this means because it says, The Lord said to me again, go love a woman who is loved by another lover. Oh, this again. I got to go find me a paramour and marry her again. Won't this be fun? And so the ESV, being more literal, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. So we have to consider for just a minute whether she is uh, Gomer or not Gomer. It's clear that she is Gomer. The character of the two women is exactly the same. Hosea is told here to love her, not to take her. Not take in marriage, but love. Go show love to the woman. And then it it fits the parallel between Israel and God, which is not that God says, okay, fine. You Jews rejected me. I'm going over to the Mesopotamians and find me some people there. Uh, So Hosea is married again, and he's married to Gomer. So that wraps this up, right? Now we've got happy ending, happy story, because they get married. He calls her out of her unfaithfulness. She shows unfaithfulness within the marriage, but... Her husband comes and gets her back, and now she'll be faithful, because that's what people do. They're unfaithful once, but then we learn our lesson, and we are totally faithful after that. No, not, not at all, huh? Uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6. 
are about unfaithfulness. And just a few things I want to pull out about unfaithfulness. The first is the cause. Unfaithfulness and its cause. Because there's a lot of causes here. Crystal, can you read, and I'm in chapter 4, can you read 1 through 3? Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. What's a cause, one cause of covenant breaking? There's no knowledge of God in the land. There's no covenant loyalty. There's no that word is Hesed, which is a good Old Testament Bible word. There's no covenant loyalty. There's no truth. There's no God, knowledge of God in the land. And what does that lead to? It leads to moral chaos. Each man does what is right in his own eyes. Why? Because we don't look to the word of God and we have no loyalty to the word of God. And when people do what people want to do, do you know what the result is? Moral chaos. You ever been to Walmart on Black Friday? Moral chaos. I got hit in the head with a chair once. I can't answer that question because the recording's on, but I have an answer. What what else leads to this? Justin, will you read verse 6? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also I will forget your children. Megan, will you read seven through ten? The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquities. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the Lord, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Karen, will you read 12? My people inquire of a piece of wood, and they are walking south against the portal. For a spirit of boredom has led them astray, and they must their God to play the So in those three readings, the people are doing a lot of things wrong, but all three of those have one thing in common. There's one group of people that are leading the people astray with all of these things. The word was used a few times. Who is to blame for this category? The priests. The priests are failing to teach the law. The priests are using the the cult, I mean that in a technical sense, the the cult worship, uh, to feed their own appetites. The people are having to use divination to figure out what God says to them, as if the word of God has not been revealed. Uh, Jake, will you read 13 and 14? They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. 
For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Stephen, will you read 17 through 19? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind is wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The breakdown of legitimate worship. Part of the covenant unfaithfulness is the failure to worship rightly. Cult prostitution, drunken lewdness, idol worship. Uh, Paul gets onto the Corinthians for some of this stuff. It's not like this was just ancient crazy talk. I am convinced God looks at some of what happens in churches today with Christian on the sign. And it is no different than this. It is the inventions of men for what will amuse and entertain their senses rather than what God has said is the way to engage with him in worship. So the result of breaking covenant is judgment. Chapter 5 begins with this big call to judgment, 5, 1 through 7, and then a series of laments for Israel. We don't have time to go through all of them, but 5, 8 through 6, 11 is the prophetic warning of the tumultuous history that I told you about at the very beginning of class today. This series of chaos in kings that comes toward the end of the northern kingdom, these assassinations and this political turmoil. That's 5.8 through 6.11 is that chaotic politics. And then ultimately, the rejection of Israel. Lauren, do you have yours? Uh, Will you read 6, 1 through 6? Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out, his going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains upon the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hanged them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of the Lord rather than burnt offerings. Fleeting covenant loyalty does not impress God. Loving God in times of need so that he will fill that need and then turning from God in times of plenty because we don't need God is not something that God considers covenant faithfulness. That is fleeting covenant loyalty. And so the punishment for this will come. And that's chapters 7 through 10, this series of laments against Israel, their wickedness internally, their domestic politics, their foreign affairs, the destruction that will come because of their rebellion. Chapter 9 talks about the false security that they live in because of a good harvest. And so what will God do when in the plentiful times Israel turns from God? God can do the only thing that's loving, which is to dry up their grapes. to take it away from them because they are finding their security in this thing instead of him. And there's a nice um, play on words 
in chapter 10 where it's talking about Israel as a spreading vine, but instead of spreading the grapes of prosperity and kind of the way you would think of a good harvest, it's the fruit of iniquity that is growing on those vines and that is spreading. And the image of a, of a cow pulling a plow, treading up the fields or treading up the grain when you're harvesting the grain is Israel being a cow treading up iniquity from the earth and just pulling it up from the soil. Hosea's message, despite all of this, is ultimately about the love of God despite people's unfaithfulness. Chapters 12 and 13 as I, are all about judgment. They're messages of judgment. But they are bookended by 11 and 14. And 11 and 14 are about promises of restoration. The end is near for the northern kingdom. And yet, God will always deliver and preserve his remnant. God will always maintain a core of faithfulness for himself and he will keep all of his promises of blessing to them who are faithful because he has kept them faithful. So Hosea ends with some wise advice, this concluding word to the reader, having considered the story of Hosea and Gomer and now having considered the message of Gomer for a lot of chapters, judgment uh, and, and, and promise restoration. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. It's really that simple. Do you believe what God says? Or like Gomer, like Israel, do you think it needs to be what God says plus? God's provision plus I'm going to make sure I'm financially secure and not dependent on anybody. God's provision plus, I'm going to make sure I'm never in situations that are outside of my control. That way I can make sure that everything works out okay. God's provision plus whatever else. My good works so that I feel like I can hand to God. See, I deserve this. Whatever you try to add to God, not only is it unnecessary, it's counterproductive. And so the wise, the upright is the one who understands the ways of the Lord are right. Stop adding to them. Stop feeling like they're insufficient. Stop disbelieving them. They are right.